people in the car laugh.
Welcome to the weekly review. Said that like a question. It's not a question. It's a statement. Uh, hello, it's Roman. It is Friday, January 29th, 2016. I opened up the show with some Jefferson Airplane, uh, Paul Kantner, who is one of the members, uh, passed away yesterday and um, happened to be uh, visiting with a friend in from out of town. And we are in North Beach at uh, Cafe Trieste. And it's Paul Kantner, like, lived right across the street. So that was a very, uh, ooh, uh, yeah, it was interesting to be at that space, a place I'd never been, that particular establishment that day. So uh, remembering uh, the folks who were working there and many of the locals who were there uh, enjoying their coffee were, were, were talking about him. And uh, yeah, so that's that happened. Uh, I've got a lot of ranting to do today, as per usual, and we'll be joined with a guest next week. Very excited about that. We'll have uh, Zarina Zabritsky, who will be interviewing uh, Pussy Riot at the Warfield in February. That's next month. That's com- that's in a few days, actually. Uh, February is coming up. So we'll be talking to Zarina, and very much looking forward to that. Um, so the Super Bowl is coming here, even though no- not people don't really want it here. Uh, a lot of folks don't want it. So there's been a lot of, uh, we're going to go first with this. Why I can talk about my own personal feelings about the Super Bowl and professional sports, which is complicated. Uh, the Super Football, professional football has always been my least favorite of the professional sports. I guess, well, golf is, that's also, haven't been a fan of that. However, as far as, far as like team sports go, I was always more into basketball and baseball um, growing up and football. And I think part of this has to do definitely with socialization of sports and being able to play sports as a kid and being socialized as female and what's available. So I played soccer a lot and that was great. I loved it. And I played softball and played basketball and didn't really play football at all, uh, aside from like throwing a football around, but that was about it. And, uh, certainly there are female people who play football. Uh, I think as far as sports go in terms of kind of opening up sports to, uh, everyone, I guess football hasn't really been as open as other sports. That would be my conclusion. And, uh, I mean, I, it's just never a sport that's really interested me in a way. Uh, certainly I can see the, the homoerotic, uh, feelings around it or the undercurrents. Certainly that's very interesting that, you know, folks, and I have a lot of friends who are big football fans, uh, this idea of folks kind of coming together. And I, I get the, as far as going with with team sports and the camaraderie and, you know, you're rooting for something that great, that's greater than yourself and you're all taking part. And I like that the friends, I have a few friends who are Green Bay Packers. I have like friends across the spectrum who are always posting on Facebook with X, X and Y team. And I'm always curious about the politics behind the team and the behavior of the players and or the establishment, who the owners. And like I've heard the Steelers are just like not like – even giving them like airtime, it's like, why am I even doing that? Uh, but just like people's behavior, like you don't want to encourage a team where someone plays on there and they're a jerk. Um, talking about Ben Roethlisberger. Anyway, um, so for instance, like the Green Bay Packers, it's like they're like kind of collectively owned. And I think that's really cool. So that's, that's one element uh, of it. But there's the money, the absurd amount of money that goes into professional sports, especially the Super Bowl. And... Uh, it's disgusting. Also, the 49ers don't play in San Francisco. They don't play here yet. And I'll be reading a few articles about this as well. Uh, the mayor asked that we, we clean up. We, uh, I'm not part of that we, but 
whatever, uh, clean up the city and by clean up, uh, mostly displace the homeless. So there uh, have been folks who've been posting about working in hospitals and having people 5150 against their wishes, which is pretty obscene uh, and disgusting. Um, people who've been, they've been bringing people into the hospitals, they've been pushing people out of their, their tent cities to make room for corporate sponsors and tourists and sex traffickers because some folks maybe aren't aware um, there's a lot of sex trafficking that happens at the Super Bowl, and you got folks coming in from out of town, and there's a lot of shady and disgusting business happenings that occur as well. And also, Super Bowl, um, a terrible fact is that it happens to be that weekend happens to be the uh, hotline centers, hotline numbers. I'm, I'm waking up here a bit. Uh, receive like the highest amount of calls in terms of battered women. Uh, during the Super Bowl, and that's um, partially due to folks either losing bets or XYZ or being extremely intoxicated, um, largely, um, and I think tied to folks gambling and then losing money and then taking it out on people. And then, so there's like this kind of hidden, not even hidden because we're talking about it, but it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's so, I think it's so disgusting. I think it's so, so disgusting. And uh, the money that's spent on it and the advertising and the what happens to make way for it. And it's always just it's like corporate sponsors. And even with San Francisco, it's like we've gotten a pretty, we as a city, uh, have gotten a pretty raw deal. Even though it's, it's like not even going to be played here. And they're kind of bringing people in. They're kicking out the homeless instead of actually helping homeless folks, which had been happening anyway. It's like gives... It gives politicians a reason to mistreat people. They're having like a, a big event like this, and uh, Muni. There's been like they've been asking like for cause, like, the uh, certain uh, the the bus lines have been like and Muni lines have been like either redirected or shut down a little bit to make way for Super Bowl. They call it Super Bowl City, which is just a city I would never want to live in. Or reluctant, I was reluctantly there yesterday, and just I could see them like putting up all this construction and ugh, ugh, gross. Um, so they're making way for folks to come in and they're pushing out homeless folks who are some of the most vulnerable people here living in the city who need to be helped. And I think it's just, it's super disgusting and it kind of puts like a magnifying glass on it, just the, the problem of the city and also just how they will deal with like corporate sponsors and it's really about greed. It's not about helping people at all. I've, I was never under the impression that it was. Um, but how how dare how dare they how dare they? And there's also been articles saying that like a lot of folks are making more money off Airbnb. Like Airbnb is going to do well because of the Super Bowl because people will be renting out their spaces on there. And it's just like I don't know what city this is. I I really don't know, and it, it just really depresses me. And also just I'm not really affi- closely affiliated with any team, so I don't really the best I can. It's like a through one degree one or two degrees I would say like just people I know who are who like football and or like their teams and I I respect that and if it makes people I love happy that's great uh, I just wonder if there could be other events that happen that uh, oh, don't cause this kind of damage really and yeah there's it's not even just like there aren't any two teams playing tonight I guess I'd be happy if the Raiders were playing and, and would win it'd be a good thing for Oakland and that would be nice and i like underdogs um but other than that i don't feel really committed one way or the other i would love it if it would end in a tie and they would all make out with each other afterwards but i don't think that's going to happen 
so yeah, so that's that's that that's my mini Super Bowl rant. And we'll be going into some stories about that, and I'll probably just start off with that since that's oh, uh, there's a lot of other stuff too. There's uh, other stuff as well. We're talking about the the water crisis in Flint and how I never thought I could hate a governor worse than I hate Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, but uh, Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, he's he's up there. I, I didn't think it was possible for me to dislike one governor more than Scott Walker, and yet that has happened. So I'm going to put on some music, uh, have a little bit more caffeine, and get some stories ready. They're, they're already ready. They've been written. Uh, so stories about the Super Bowl, stories about Flint. There's also been uh, an article that was written about uh, sexual harassment within the comedy community, uh, which is something, unfortunately, I think most folks can relate to. And so I was going to read an article about that. That was like based on within like the improv community, especially coming out of Chicago. And uh, there's also some friends in New York had posted a, there's like a, a Google Doc. It's really short and brief. And it just, it's like asking for folks to record their experiences. Like, and you can do it anonymously. And I think I'm, I'm great. I'm very grateful that that is out there as someone who's experienced uh variety of unpleasantness uh throughout my years within the both stand-up and improv communities i'm glad that there are folks who are organizing yeah that's a word organizing ha <sighs> all right so i'll be playing some music last episode and i'll be waking up i definitely will be waking up i haven't been sleeping too well uh last episode played some music by this band called l1011 we'll be playing some more of their music it's instrumental which is great so after i do these really heavy depressing news stories i'll find something positive i'll be i'll find a positive news story in here i haven't found it yet but there will be one uh then it's like oh i can go into the song instead of something cheery and poppy which i love cheery and poppy music it's great it's just sometimes uh you got to pay attention to the mood so we played some L107, and I'll be back with some more stories and all that good stuff, and maybe some more ranting because uh, there's a lot to be upset about. So here we go.
11. I must said L107 or L7, different band. Um, so I didn't quite finish that rant before because I, sometimes I can just talk for a while and find the points I'm trying to make. And I think just trying to tie in different things that are happening together, both in the news and uh, personally, uh, but keeping it vague enough. And part of it, I'm still just uh, pretty upset about Bryn Kelly's passing. Uh, Bryn passed about two weeks ago, and I'll be reading. There's a there's a write up about an upcoming memorial that they're having for her. She was a friend of mine from New York, a writer, and uh, the second friend I've lost to suicide in less than six months. So, uh, who also happens to be trans. So it's ah, uh, looking for words to say about that, and still still dealing with that and there uh listen to mark maron's wtf podcast and he had an interview with todd haynes that was excellent and uh todd haynes was discussing how uh with like i think fran Lebowitz or there is this idea of how i think about this quite often how the folks lost in in the 80s mostly in the, you know for uh folks lost to hiv and aids within the queer community and how the world is shaped differently and looks different and feels different without their presence and people who would have been teachers and artists and doctors and lawyers and like just how people and parents and people who would have just kind of created and shifted the landscape at San Francisco definitely would not be, I don't know what it would be like, but it definitely would not have, I think, turned out to be this way had that population still been in place. Um, so I thought about that just in terms of not having this older generation or having so few folks of this older generation there to kind of guide and to change things a little bit. And then also the folks who were there and did survive, they're kind of dealing with all this trauma um, of having, you know, gone to funerals every week and see, and having had so many of their, their friends die and what that must've been like. So people are kind of carrying on this, like this, these traumas and it just feels, uh, almost unidentifiable and I guess the best way one can do is talk about it so in the interview um, something that was brought up which I'd never thought about was that not only are we you know missing these people and what their contributions would have been but as artists as queer artists we're missing these these are audience members these are folks who would have um, been really hungry for this for the kind of work that queer artists put out and the fact that uh, they're not here it's you feel that like that absence even more so that re that really struck me, and I thought that was a really um, important thing to, to think about. Because as an artist, I've been doing theater and varying types of performance. I don't even know how to label it really. Uh, creative work, I would say. And there has been there's like a lot of different elements as to how one would define, I guess, success or feel like they're getting their word out or finding the right audience. And some of it, unfortunately, has to do with with marketing and our culture. And get and there's some folks are very assertive, very good at that, very like assertive and aggressive with marketing and, and putting the word out. Uh, I'm, I don't happen to be one of those people, uh, which I'm accepting and, you know, trying to work on. Um, so uh, on top of that, there's also there are the the folks, there are people out there who um, might not feel comfortable coming out and seeing work, but there, there is that idea of like, oh, you got to find quote unquote, find your audience. Or and I've performed to countless. I don't want to like, identify folks based on like, oh, straight, blank, 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 whatever. But folks who maybe not won't identify as as in terms of my experiences as far as other folks might may have, and there's people who would possibly have identified with who just aren't here. So I mean, what does that what does that look like when uh, we are 
kind of looking for folks to fill space and those folks just are no longer with us. What does, uh, what does that look like and what does that feel like? And I feel like that there's that emptiness there where it's like something feels a little bit off and now being able to, again, I guess, identify it and put words to it and ideas to it that there's part of the population that makes it who, since they're no longer here, it makes it that much more difficult for the folks of us who, who are here. So how can we do this to help each other? And so then dealing with suicide within the community and trying to be there for one another and we're, and so many of us are experiencing it and how do we hold each other and take care of one another when we are all um, affected in our, in our own ways and everyone experiences grief differently and uniquely and there's a different timeline and uh, I've been grateful for the folks I, I've I have a very complicated relationship with social media. I do feel grateful for the folks who have posted online about it because I feel like more connected to them and there will be an event that's happening uh, here in the Bay Area Memorial for Bryn uh, in February and I'm grateful to be able to see um, folks out here because I'm not going to be able to make it to the one in New York. Um, but just to being able to grieve with people uh, is such a... It can be so comforting to be able to have that. Um, but then, and even that though doesn't quite it doesn't repair anything it doesn't take back any of the pain that one um, has gone through and is going through and the loss and then here are folks who are people um you know i was talking to a friend about this uh last week just people we would have collaborated with and worked with and they're not here anymore and what does that feel like and I think that's something that um, certain people might not understand or, or, or experience, and it's very difficult to, to communicate that, that sense of loss. That's, it goes beyond not having someone there in life and not making their work. And even if, I wonder, you know, if, if I were to never have spoken to her again, like I can't imagine that, I wasn't planning on it, um, but one would hope that they would at least be able to like make their own work and to do their work and to contribute and to not have that voice there anymore um, is just so uh, it's a loss for the world at large and that's uh, it's just it's incomprehensible to think about that there's like a, a life and a voice that's that's not here anymore and there's the work that she did and how she touched us and I also am I would say, I don't want to describe it as new agey, but I do believe in energies and um, folks, um, they're, they're still with us in, in some way. Um, it's just so difficult to, to navigate um, how to, I guess, not necessarily how to go on because we end up just going on, uh, although it's very hard for a lot of us. Um, but when our, our colleagues are no longer here and it's different then um, I think losing someone to, to suicide is different than losing someone to another. Uh, if it, because a lot of it for me has to do with society um, and the structures and the systems. And I talk about that a lot on the show and in, in life. If you, if you talk to me outside of the show, I pretty much talk like this, just not as much. Um, the, the systems that are in place that kind of push people to, to suicidal ideation. And that's what's so 
fucking disgusting is that it's not anything that's intrinsically wrong with us at all. It's society telling us, whether it's through the media or through whatever any other means, that we're somehow not okay. And it's it's the I think the word that comes into mind is preventable. And to not be able to prevent it and we can all work to prevent it. it but in a way it feels like especially now just and it's it's common just for me it's happened more recently um how how does one prevent that from happening within the community because it does it, it does spread so i was thinking about that and how even just coping with that and then how that affects one's behavior so i'm, I'm sad and i'm grieving and i'm upset and so that's going to inform how I make decisions, if I can make decisions, how long it'll take me to leave the house. And then there's the different stages of grief. You know, there's like the bargaining. I'm not going to go in order. I don't know the specific word. But like the, um, there's like there's a bargaining and the denial and the finally acceptance. And then there, I feel like with in certain like with um, not necessarily material possessions, but I have found it's like tricky. Like I wanted to leave the house yesterday or the day before, and it was. And I do have like some social anxiety as much as the next person, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, depends on the day. Depends on how, when I'm, where I'm going and what's been going on in my mind. And I'll, I'll find if I'm leaving, if I'm leaving the apartment. Okay, what do I take with me? And I always want to take like a pad of paper and a pen, and then uh, like headphones for music and a book and water and snacks. And then sometimes I just don't want to carry anything, which I definitely read into that as like metaphorical. Like I don't want to bring anything with me. And how nice it feels. And also just as someone who's kind of bounced around a bit and had a backpack a lot more times just because I need to have things with me, how nice it feels to not have that, to not have that baggage, however one wants to look at that as carrying something, and how there's a fear about not having things with me and wanting to bring things. And I think that can be kind of correlated or that can correspond to how one deals with grief, with like wanting to still hold on to people and, and carry them with them and I'm also just sensitive to space now that we're just totally going into it uh, I do have therapy after after the radio show interestingly enough <laughs> if this isn't enough uh, um, this idea uh, of like spaces and sometimes I found myself being like drawn into spaces where someone was before if I miss them or someone who passed like wanting to go back to a particular space where I know that we had a conversation um, not to necessarily relive it but just to kind of recognize that they're that they were in this space before and to kind of soak that up i, I think that's really uh, palpable um just yeah how we use spaces and going back to remembering a space is really important so so yeah getting back to the whole grieving thing which i didn't talk about in the opening I was just trying to prepare my th well not trying uh, I was preparing, preparing my thoughts and waking up a little bit and it's difficult to to talk about and to share about but i know we all go through this so why not talk about it um how just grief can affect <coughs> grief can affect behavior and uh so i do improv and i'm on a team and it's i don't know i feel eh, not quite part of it in a lot of ways and i do recognize that part of it come and we all have our own personal lives and our own experiences and our own histories um and then coming into it with I've had the experience on on the on the the team that I'm with or various incarnations of coming in and being like, "Oh, I just found out someone I knew died or an activist who died and 
this this past time I I've just I've only told a couple people, um, but it's like almost like a pattern, and it doesn't happen every week. Although do people do die every week? Uh, it's unjustly. The it's just become so not not normalized, but just it's like this this thing I'm constantly bringing with me and I have the choice of, I can just not go at all. Um, or I can go and ha- know that this is weighing on me and I can choose to share it and, or I can choose to share it with certain people. And I, it makes me feel like, uh, a, a, that much more of an outsider in a way to, to, ha- to, to carry this. And I've, I recognize that we all carry burdens and we all carry, um, experiences and traumas with us and they're not talked about so I know in no way want to single myself out for that Uh, as a trans person there are so many different layers of baggage that it's to even get into is just it's ridiculous and I recognize that it to be true in that when I talk with other trans folks um, no matter what our, our background is there's like it's almost like a shorthand in a way where it's like just talking to someone else who's had that experience it's we kind of cut through so much bullshit um even some very well-meaning cis friends i have sometimes it's like just and one can you know of course we all have our own experiences you can't expect everyone to automatically understand what someone's going through and the language to use and or how to uh, approach the subject or talk about the subject and sure things are getting better it's just that with in some degrees it's um the idea it's the idea that when i'm with other trans folks it's like it really does feel like shorthand it's there's so much less it's like we're speaking the same language in a way that's uh, haven't quite felt before, and to try to explain that to people, it makes it realize makes me realize how it's easy to feel othered when I'm not with trans folks, and the topic of gender or something along those lines comes up. To have someone who hasn't because necess- like we have all people that's the that's the there's this myth that only trans folks have to deal with gender stuff, but like everyone does. Like when you're born, like the gender binary f- and like gender roles are terrible for everybody. It's a struggle for everybody. It makes everything, the patriarchy makes everything worse for everyone. Not just if you decide to actively transition, but for everyone in terms of how one acts and how we treat each other and the boxes we put each other into, what's expected of us, what's expected of each other. It's it's terrible for everyone. I think just being trans- transgender like makes one recognize that. Um, so it's like uh, you kind of like jump ahead in a way where you like recognize like here's one huge flaw with society. Here's one huge misstep. And when I talk with other trans folks, it's like, oh, we've already come to this. We've already, not that we haven't, there's plenty of infighting. There's a lot of infighting in, within the community and a lot of abuse and that's terrible. Um, as far as talking, so it's not like, ooh, everything's super peachy and rosy between all of us. It is, though, I find I really seek other trans folks to talk to, and thankfully I'm able to meet a lot. But it feels there's something really reassuring about it that it's... So to have another loss is just, here's someone else who who spoke the language. 
and uh, to uh, we'll be missing her quite a bit. Oh, so that was rant part two. That feels I feel a lot better getting that out, and uh, hopefully folks can identify with uh, some and any any of that at all. So. Um, should we, shall we, let's eat. Oh, goodness, it's already 12.35. So, how about, we'll play some more music, and then we'll get back into some stories. There's some more L, uh, L107.
welcome back. I'm I'm digging this music a lot. It's great. So found some articles and I found a, a positive news one news story coming up. So everyone be happy about that. Uh, first up, we'll talk about the Super Bowl, and this comes from Tim Redmond, who writes for Forty Eight Hills. Forty Eight Hills is a uh, the Guardian, uh, San Francisco Bay Guardian. Uh, closed down for a while but they've done some fundraising so they should be back up which will be nice another thing about this the city uh changing and not a very progressive way is that that also means like the independent news media ends up leaving as well so not only are there like the lack of the the art and the soul of the city um there's also just lack of folks actually reporting about what's going on so it'll be nice that the guardian the sfb guardian will be coming back and in the meantime there's the 48 hills which is uh good Good, good source. Also, there's there's Hoodline as well. So this is from Tim Tim Redmond, and the title of the article is "Occupy the Super Bowl?" Question mark. Protesters are going to set up a homeless Super Bowl city on the Embarcadero. How will Mayor Lee respond? The supporters of the Super Bowl want San Francisco to look like a nice, clean city where all is golden diamonds and special 50 sculptures and rich people can spend freely without guilt or concern. But it's not going to work out that way. February 3rd, advocates for the homeless are going to be holding what I think could turn out to be a massive demonstration right on the edge of Super Bowl City. I like to think of it as Occupy the Super Bowl. The Coalition on Homelessness, who are awesome, we had uh, Jennifer Friedenbach, the executive director on the show, and Brooke Stewart also had on the show, Yeah, are promoting the event, which will feature a tent city right next to the Glitz. Already 800 people have RSVP'd on the Facebook page, and that's probably a fraction of the folks who will actually show up. We'll be making a homeless Super Bowl city, Stewart told me. We're planning to be there a while. This will happen right in the middle of the big week of events, and the national news media will be on hand, and if enough people show up, it will be a glorious mess. And are the SF cops going to forcibly remove protesters, or will there be an alternative city right next to where the billionaires are holding their party? Right now, homeless people are being driven out of the downtown area, which is one reason there's a huge tent city on division. The other reason... It's comparatively dry under the freeway, and El Nino is a public health issue. The SFPD has said it will not interfere with peaceful protests, and I have every reason to believe that the homeless Super Bowl city will be peaceful, just as Occupy SF was peaceful. But the mayor has insisted that homeless people will have to leave the downtown area. So what is he going to do? Better to have the cops drag away thousands of protesters in front of the national TV cameras, and trust me, they are all looking for this story, or accept the fact that the failures of the city's housing policies will be right there for all to see. Protesters are meeting at 4.30 p.m. in front of uh, Sinbad's on the Embarcadero right next to the ferry building. Among the demands the protesters are making, the $5 million that the city is spending to promote the Super Bowl, which is fucking bullshit. And just a side note, I was, I was downtown yesterday and I got out of the Muni station and I saw like a little placard for that was like advertising Super Bowl gear down um, in, in the station. And right next to this placard was a, was a homeless person sitting there. And I was so fucking tempted just to take this placard and just toss it in the trash. I didn't. And of course, that's not even that big of a deal, but like just the uh, the juxtaposition there, it's just, uh, okay, blah. 
Huh. So, okay. So among the demands that the protesters are making, the $5 million that the city is spending to promote the Super Bowl. Okay. It's just on promotion. $5 million on promotion. Okay. Um, that could house 500 people. Why not put that money into housing? And some facts from the Facebook page. There is one shelter bed for every six homeless people. There is an 8,000-person-long wait list for housing. Uh, 3,300 children make up San Francisco's homeless. 61% have disabilities. 11,000 citations were given to homeless for resting in San Francisco last year. That's right. 11,000 citations were given to homeless folks for resting in San Francisco last year. And here are some Super Bowl-related statistics, which will be fun to get into. Uh, 25% of the costs for Super Bowl ads would be enough to end homelessness in San Francisco. That's each 30-second Super Bowl ad costs $5 million. So, so 25%. So only a quarter of the Super Bowl ads could end homelessness in San Francisco. And uh, the $5 million cost to San Francisco to host the Super Bowl would house 500 homeless people. San Francisco Police Department is responsible for clearing out homeless people for the Super Bowl by giving them citations, which are already up 30% from last year. So that's something to think about. Um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I'm just going to go into the next story. There's some other Super Bowl-ish type uh, uh, stories going on. And I, I do like to group the stories based, you know, do a few on this topic, a few on this, da da da. We're gonna be jumping around a little bit, so maybe we'll return to the Super Bowl. We don't know. It's that I feel like that article pretty much summarizes uh, everything I wanted to say about it. Great. So this comes from Michael Moore, and this is about the we there's this, the ongoing issue issue in Flint, and that it's also kind of occurring around the the country where folks in low income neighborhoods don't have quality water, and there's a lot of pollution. So, uh, from Michael Moore's page, uh, how can you help Flint? Do not send us bottles of water. Instead, join us in a revolt. A letter to America from Michael Moore. And this is also posted on the Facebook page, so you can read it. There's also uh, actions you can take that you can find there on the Weekly Review webpage. All right. Many of you have contacted me wanting to know how you can help the people of Flint with the two-year-long tragedy of drinking water contaminated by the radical decisions made by the governor of Michigan. The offer is much appreciated by those who are suffering through this and who have not drank a glass of unpoisoned water since April of 2014. Unfortunately, the honest answer to your offer of help is sadly, you can't. You can't help. The reason you can't help is that you cannot reverse the irreversible brain damage that has been inflicted upon every single child in Flint. The damage is permanent. There is no medicine you can send, no doctor or scientist who has any way to undo the harm done to thousands of babies, toddlers, and children, not to mention their parents. They are ruined for life, and someone needs to tell you the truth about that. They will forever suffer from various neurological impediments, their IQs will be lowered by at least 20 points, they will not do as well in school, and by the time they reach adolescence, they will exhibit various behavioral problems that will land a number of them in trouble and some of them in jail. Hopefully by then we'll have abolished prisons, but that's another story. Uh, that is what we know about the history of lead poisoning when you inflict it upon a child. It is a life sentence. In Flint, they've already ingested it for, for these two years, 
and the toll has already been taken on their develop, developing brains. No check you write, no truckloads of Fiji water or Poland Spring will bring their innocence or their health back to normal. It's done. And it was done knowingly, enacted by a political decision from a governor and a political party charged by the majority of Michigan citizens who elected them to cut taxes for the rich, take over majority black cities by replacing the elected mayors and city councils, cut costs, cut services, cut more taxes for the rich, increase taxes on retired teachers and public employees, and ultimately try to decimate their one line of defense against all this, this thing we used to call a union. The amount of generosity since the national media finally started to cover this story has been tremendous. Pearl, Pearl Jam sent 100,000 bottles of water. The next day, the Detroit Lions showed up with a truck and 100,000 bottles of water. Yesterday, Puff Daddy and Mark Wahlberg donated 1 million bottles of water. Unbelievably amazing. They acknowledged it's a very short-term fix, and that it is. Flint has 102,000 residents, each in need of an average of 50 gallons of water a day for cooking, bathing, washing clothes, doing the dishes, and drinking. I'm not counting toilet flushes, watering plants, or washing the car. But 100,000 bottles of water is enough for just one bottle per person. In other words, just enough to cover brushing one's teeth for one day. You would have to send 200 bottles a day per person to cover what the average American, we are Americans in Flint, needs each day. That's 102,000 citizens times 200 bottles of water, which equals 20.4 million 16-ounce bottles of water per day every day for the next year or two until this problem is fixed. Oh, and we'll need to find a landfill in Flint big enough for all those hundreds of millions of plastic water bottles, thus degrading the local environment even further. Anybody want to pony up for that? Because that is the reality. This is a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. There is not a terrorist organization on earth that has yet to figure out how to poison 100,000 people every day for two years and get away with it. That took a governor who subscribes to an American political ideology hell-bent on widening the income inequality gap and conducting various versions of voter and electoral suppression against people of color and the poor. It was those actions that, that led Michigan's Republican governor to try out his economic and racial experiment in Flint. And please don't tell me this has nothing to do with race or class. He has removed the mayors of a number of black cities. This and the water crisis in Flint never uh, would have been visited upon the residents of Bloomfield Hills or Gross Point. And everyone here knows that. We have now seen the ultimate disastrous consequences of late 20th century neoconservative trickle-down public policy. The word trickles, a water-based metaphor, was used to justify this economic theory. Well, it's no longer a metaphor, is it? Because now we're talking about how actual water has been used to institute these twisted economic beliefs in destroying the lives of the black and the poor in Flint, Michigan. So do you still want to help? Really help? Because uh, what we need in Flint and across the country right now, tonight, 
is a nonviolent army of people who are willing to stand up for this nation and go to bat for the forgotten of Flint. Here is what you and I need to do. One, demand the removal and arrest of Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan. When the police have an active shooter situation in a building, they must first stop the shooter before they can bring aid to the victim. The perp who allowed the poisoning to continue once he knew something was wrong and his minions who cooked, who cooked the evidence so the public and the feds wouldn't find out must be removed from office as soon as possible. Whether it's via resignation, recall, or prosecution, this must happen now because he is still refusing to take the aggressive and immediate action needed. His office, as recently as this past Thursday, was claiming the EPA had no legal authority to tell him what to do. You know the EPA, that federal agency every Republican politician once eliminated? Governor Snyder is not going to obey the law. He has covered up the crime, and I submit he has committed an act of voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Last month, I posted a meme of me holding a pair of handcuffs with the hashtag, hashtag ArrestGovSnyder. It went viral, so I posted a petition, and they have a link here, to U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch asking her to arrest the governor and asking President Obama to send help to Flint immediately. As each day brought a new revelation of the governor's corruption or incompetence, and with Rachel Maddow on a nightly tear, the momentum built. MoveOn.org and uh, Democracy for America joined me in circulating our petition. We are now on our way to having a half million signatures. Then Bernie Sanders became the first candidate to call for the governor's removal. That same day, President Obama issued his first emergency order for Flint. The next night, Hillary Clinton fiercely called out the racist actions of the governor. You want to help? Sign the petition and get everyone you know to sign it. Now, another half million signatures could become the tipping point we need. All eyes are on Flint. Uh, number two, make the state of Michigan pay for the disaster that the state of Michigan created. The governor wants the president to declare Flint a federal disaster zone and have him send federal money to fix the problem. Not so fast. All relief aid for Flint currently coming from the federal government in, to Michigan is going through the governor's office to disperse. That is literally paying the fox to fix the chicken coop he destroyed. As a Michigan resident and voter, I think that the people who elected Governor Snyder must show some of that personal responsibility they're always lecturing about to the poor. The majority of my fellow Michiganders wanted this kind of government. They elected him twice, so now they should have to pay for it. This year, the state treasury posted nearly a $600 million surplus. There is also another $600 million in the state's rainy day fund. That's $1.2 billion, just about what Flint Congressman Dan Kildee estimates it will cost to replace the water infrastructure and care for the thousands of poisoned children throughout their growing years. And before there is any talk of federal tax dollars being used, and yes, they will be needed, 
The state legislature must remove the billion dollars worth of tax cuts the Snyder administration gave the wealthy when he took office. That will go a long way to helping not just Flint, but Michigan's other destitute cities and school districts. Three, the federal government must then be placed in charge. The state government cannot be trusted to get this right. So instead of declaring a federal disaster zone, President Obama must declare the same version of martial law that Governor Snyder declared over the cities of Flint and Detroit. He must step in and appoint a federal emergency manager in the state capital to direct the resources of both the state and federal government in saving Flint. This means immediately sending in FEMA in full force. It means sending in the CDC to determine the true extent of not just the lead poisoning in the water, but also the latest outbreak that has been discovered in Flint. A tenfold increase in the number of Flint people who have contracted Legionnaire's disease. There have now been 87 cases since the switch to the Flint River water, and 10 people have died. The local hospital has also noted sharp increases in half a dozen other toxins found in people's bodies. We need the CDC. We need the CDC. The EPA must take over the testing of the water, and the Army Corps of Engineers must be sent in to begin replacing the underground pipes. Like the levees in New Orleans, this will be a massive undertaking. If it is turned over to a for-profit business, it will take a decade and cost billions. This needs to happen right now, and Obama must be in charge. Number four, evacuate any and all Flint residents who want to leave now. They've suffered long enough, and until the water is truly safe, no one should have to stay in there who doesn't want to. The state and FEMA should, have, should move people into nearby white townships that are still hooked up in Lake Huron water. And number five, for those who choose to stay in Flint, FEMA must create a temporary water system in each home. One idea that has been suggested is the is in uh, is to deliver two fifty-five gallon drums to every home in Flint. Each day, water trucks will arrive to fill them and fresh, clean glacial water from Lake Huron. Huron, the drums will have taps attached to them. People can't be expected to carry jugs of water from buildings that are miles away. In the end, we will need to create a new economy and bring new employment to this town that created the middle class, that elected the first black mayor, and that believed in and created the American dream. They deserved more than to be poisoned by their own governor, a governor who thought that because the people in the town were politically weak, he could get away with this un unnoticed and without a fight. He figured wrong. A crime against humanity has been committed against the people of Flint, making them refugees in their own homes. Tell me honestly, if you were living in Flint right now, and you learned that your children had been drinking lead-filled water for two years, and then you discovered that the governor knew this, and the state lied about it, tell me just how fast your head would be spinning. With your children now poisoned, and with the poisoning continuing, is the word nonviolence dominating your thoughts right now? Are you absolutely stunningly amazed how peaceful the people in Flint have remained? Are you curious how much longer that can last? I hope it does. If you want to help Flint, sign the petition, demand that the federal government take action, and then get involved yourself. Wherever you live, 
so that this doesn't happen to you and so that the people we elect know they can no longer break the law as they rule by fist or indifference. We deserve much better than this. For a better, better world, uh, Michael Moore. And uh, right now, uh, they have uh, this petition has 482,913 signatures. So it's just about 1 o'clock. We plan some music and then back with some more stories, including some positive ones.
welcome back to the weekly review. Uh, I got some more stories for you. Uh, I like animals a lot. I think some of us do. And don't talk about, well, we talked about the earth a little bit here and the environment. That's something I want to talk about a little bit more on the show. And animal rights, certainly. So this is somewhat positive. I think it was positive. It's uh, The positive stories are, of course, of when people take action against something that's been not great. So uh, this comes from the Digital Journal, and this is Kenya to Destroy Largest Ever Ivory Stockpile. This was written by uh, Kasavan Anakrishnan. Uh, Kenya will set ablaze 120 tons of ivory worth $270 million, the biggest to be burned by any country in one go in April this year. The event will be attended by some Hollywood folks. I'm not going to mention their names because who cares? Uh, Kenya will be hosting a major global summit on illegal poaching this April. The country will also use the two-day event to set fire to its massive stockpile of ivory that has an estimated black market price of $270 million, representing the death of around 4,000 elephants. The ivory will include tusks seized from elephant poachers and from animals who died naturally. Some of the actors and business people, blah, 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 uh, are mentioning here. Uh, musicians, I don't, uh, uh, yeah, I care more about what's actually happening. Uh, Kenya plans to use the occasion to torch as many as 120 tons of ivory, largest stockpile of ivory ever destroyed by any country. Um, all proof of our commitment to zero tolerance for poaching and illegal ivory trade. The fire will be eight times the size of any ivory stockpile destroyed so far. The international trade in elephant ivory was banned by the Conference of the Parties to uh, CITES, and that's C-I-T-E-S, in 1989. But uh, one off sales uh, of old ivory stockpiles have since been permitted, giving smugglers cover for their illegal ivory trade. It is estimated that more than 30,000 elephants are killed for their tusks every year across the globe. Recently, the Sri Lankan government also destroyed more than 350 elephant tusks in an attempt to show poachers that the island will not tolerate the violent trade. And so, yeah, there we go. That's some good news, I guess. I'd rather have the elephants take over. Uh, that, That can't happen. Not, I don't know, not take over, take over, but maybe. Uh, I always uh, enjoy it. I have uh, friends who are animal act- animal rights activists, and occasionally they post stories of uh, hunters being killed by the animals that they're hunting, and that's always uh, nice to see. Okay, so moving back to the humans. Uh, humans, humans, humans. All right. Uh, what's a good... Uh, no, no seg- I, I try to find ways to like segue... I'll do that. I'll do the happiest story. It's it's early for the show, but I'll do a happier story now, and then we'll get back into some other things. Uh, yeah, whatever. So possibilities, possibilities of things that could be awesome. This comes from the Independent. Iceland's pirate party uh, takes big lead in polls ahead of election next year. That's great. And this was written by uh, Adam uh, Withnell. And uh, policies include direct democracy, new banking structures, and looser drug laws. All of those things sound fabulous to me. All right. A protest party in Iceland, which advocates 15-hour 
Oh, sorry, that's 35. 35-hour <laughs> working weeks, the loosening of drug regulation, and a drastic rethink of copyright law is now comfortably the most popular political group in the country, according to new polling results. The Pirate Party was founded by a group of activists, poets, and hackers in 2012 as an extension of the international movement of the same name. It managed to win three of the 63 seats in Iceland's parliament. The... Uh, Al Albingi Alpingi uh at the last election in April 2013 and is now polling at 37.8%, a huge figure for the country's fragmented political scene. According to polling company MMR, it increases the party's lead on both current coalition parties, independents and progressive, which command just over 30% combined. Uh, and while the group has been topping polls since April last year, the Pirate Party has never seemed nearer to the real prospect of taking power in the country, which was so decimated by the 2008 global economic crash. The party is so radical that it does not even norm does not even nominally have a leader. Yes, though former former WikiLeaks spokeswoman and now founding MP Birgitta John's daughter John's daughter tends to speak for it in public. Speaking about the the private speaking speaking about the pirate party's recent surge in the polls, she has cited the government's decision in March last year to abruptly withdraw from plans to join the EU as causing widespread dissatisfaction on the island. But she told the Australian Financial Reviews, "I don't think there is any one explanation for our popularity. People are obviously tired of being promised the world ahead of elections." only to see political parties negotiate among themselves and back away from their promises. Ms. John's daughter has said in Icelandic media interviews that the party stands for more than just its vague founding ideals based on the fostering creativity based on fostering creativity and better education. She told the Reykjavik Grapevine la late last year that the group wants to see banks completely separate their investment and commercial arms, uh, accusing the coalition of leading us into a new financial danger zone with the same old banking structure. The group also advocates a new form of direct democracy to build bridges between the general public and those they trust to serve them, though the exact mechanism of that remains unclear. And the Pirate Party is also realistic that its huge popularity in the polls may not equate to trust from voters, whether it comes to the next parliamentary election in 2017. That's too optimistic, Brigitta told AFR. But our support has found other parties to take a closer look at themselves. Well, that's great. I think that's wonderful. Um... We talk about we don't talk about surveillance too much on the show. We have it at times. It's something to 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 worry about and think. There's something else to worry about and think about uh, with you know with social media and, and talking with activists here who have been around for a while. You know, back in the day, uh, and still, of course, but like back in the day, corrupt governments or however you want to label them, FBI, whatever, would you know wiretap and break in and just plant evidence or unlawfully record folks. And now with the internet, a lot of us willingly put our information out there, especially on social media. Um, 
and however there's still this like vague idea of like oh some people want privacy yet certain corporations will sell like facebook reads our facebook messages i hope folks realize that and recognize that like the even the the message that we send on there it's all it's being surveyed so uh, uh, where's the privacy so i think surveillance is also just really important because uh some there's this idea that and glenn greenwald has talked about this as well um the idea oh well, if i'm not doing anything wrong then i've got nothing to hide however people still have passwords on the internet people still have locks on their doors they're still um, iffy about having locks on doors and the whole grand scheme of things because i do feel like that therefore that default is to assume that someone's going to steal from you and if we lived in a world without locks on doors, uh, then uh, they're kind of the thinking would be like the opposite that people are to be trusted. And how often have people locked themselves out of places they belong as opposed to, you know, it's, it's, it ends up keeping people away from each other. Uh, what was my point? My point being that people say, oh, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then it shouldn't matter. Um, but it doesn't even matter. And also, like, whether or not you're doing something wrong, it's people it's giving certain people privileges to view what someone else is their, their private thoughts and all that stuff. That's not good. Uh, where am I going with this to this story from the intercept, a positive story. Yes. How a small company in Switzerland is fighting a surveillance law and winning. That's good news. And this is from Jenna McLaughlin. Um, so yeah, check out the intercept. There's a lot of, it's a good independent news source. A uh, small email provider and its customers have mobilized to force the Swiss government to put its new invasive for surveillance law up for a public vote in a national referendum in June. Uh, this law was approved in September, and after the Paris attacks, we assumed privacy was dead at that point, said Andy Yen, co-founder of Proton Mail, when I spoke with him on the phone. He was referring to the uh, Nacrich and... and <laughs> Uh, tendence gets uh, NDG, uh, excuse me, a mouthful of a name for a bill that gave Swiss intelligence authorities more clout to spy on private communications, hack into citizens' computers, and sweep up their cell phone information. The climate of fear and terrorism, he said, felt too overwhelming to get people to care about constitutional rights when people first started organizing to fight the NDG law. Governments around the world, not to mention cable news networks, have taken advantage of tragedy to expand their reach under the guise of protecting people, even in classically neutral Switzerland, without much transparency or public debate on whether or not increased surveillance would help solve the problem. Hint, it won't. But... Thanks to the way Swiss law works, if you get together 50,000 signatures within three months of a law passing, you can force a nationwide referendum where every citizen gets a say. Imagine that. In Switzerland and overseas, no one really thought to ask the people, Yen said. The public opinion, especially from the young people, has shifted to pro-privacy. By gathering its users and teaming up with political groups, including the Green and Pirate Parties, hey, that's a segue that just, uh, I like when that works out that way, as well as technological and privacy advocates, including Chaos Computer Club Switzerland and Digital Jetzelschaft Switzerland, Proton Mail was able to contribute to the effort to collect over 70,000 signatures before the deadline. 
the new law is the first of two surveillance laws that have been circulating through the Swiss Parliament. The NDG law was fully passed in September, but can't take full effect until after the referendum vote in June. The NDG would create a mini NSA in Switzerland, Yen wrote, allowing Swiss intelligence to spy without getting court approval. It would authorize increased use of Trojans or remote hacking tactics to investigate suspects' computers, including remotely turning on webcams and taking photos, oh, as well as uh, hacking abroad to protect Swiss infrastructure. It would legalize IMSI uh, catchers or stingrays, which sweep up data about cell phones in the area. The second law, known as the BUFT, no, it's BUFT, B-U with an umlaut over the U, uh, P-F, I feel like I'm reading an I chart, might come up for a vote in the Parliament's spring session, but may be revised or delayed. The BUFT would explain the government's um, uh, ability to retain data for longer, including communications and, uh, and metadata, as well as deputize private com- companies to help spy on their users or face a fine. What I have heard from insiders is that they will reduce its scope now that they know we have the numbers to also force a vote on that law, Yen wrote in an email to The Intercept. Proton Mail created by scientists and engineers with know-how in particle physics, software, cryptology, and civil liberties provides uh, unbreakable end-to-end encryption by default to its users for free, making it easy for ordinary people to protect their communications and preserve their anonymity. With end-to-end encryption, only the person who sends the message and the person who receives it can access the content. Not even the company can see what was written. Encryption protects transaction on the internet so that criminals can't read messages, steal credit card information, or impersonate others. The Swiss surveillance bill does not compel Proton Mail to decrypt its users' communications. So, if the Swiss intelligence service forces it to hand over data, to, uh, to hand over data, all the intelligence service will get is gobbled is gobbledygook. But Proton Mail still feels the measure threatens Swiss privacy, something the company hopes to defend, regardless of its bottom line. There are some strong political currents in Europe, as in the United States, beating strongly against encryption and privacy, which law enforcement says prevents them from accessing evidence with a warrant. Lawmakers, government officials, and law enforcement agencies alike have been pushing for a way to gain access into uncrackable end-to-end encryption. Scientists collectively agree this is a bad idea and would threaten the security of the internet without actually helping anyone catch bad guys. As of November 14th, countries had passed new laws bequeathing more power to intelligence agencies to spy. France's upcoming surveillance law, though it will not mandate backdoors in encryption, will allow law enforcement more surveillance powers, including to spy on phone calls and emails without a judge's approval or uh, and install keylogger devices on suspects' computers to retrieve their passwords. The Chinese government passed a law in December requiring companies to turn over encryption keys, and the Cuban government has the power to approve all encryption technology before it's the market. In Bahrain, where dissenting political speech is condemned, encryption is outlawed for criminal intentions. 
the UK's Investigatory Powers Bill, or Snoopers Charter, <laughs> as many call it, would uh, could compel companies to help the government circumvent encryption if it becomes law, according to privacy advocates familiar with the draft legislation. Other countries' laws might affect ProtonMail's business overseas, as well as major American companies offering end-to-end -end encryption, like Apple. According to Yen, issues of national security and privacy aren't usually brought to a vote by the entire country. Nationwide referendums aren't all that common. They happen maybe five or six times a year, usually when the government wants to build something expensive and people don't want to pay for it. Forcing a referendum is a lengthy, pricey process, he says. But now, the Swiss want to be an example for the rest of the world by pushing to make data a cornerstone of the Swiss economy, he said. When you talk about data privacy, all our data goes online. We have to find a way to secure it. At the end of the day, this privacy comes at a result. This privacy comes as a result of security. The same fight is brewing in the U.S., where people might have to be more creative and forceful to make their opinions heard. Hear that. Uh, Proton Mail went out to get signatures, worked with political parties, the Green Party, the Pirate Party. In the U.S., maybe with non-mainstream political groups, with the support of young people and a few of the technology companies, there is a real chance, Ian said. A couple months ago, we thought this referendum was totally impossible. Now, here we are. Oh! So that's what? Two positive stories? And you include the, the burning of the, the, the ivory? which is i guess it's well it's sad um but there are some positive movements going on which are inspiring and i guess the more we talk about that the more we can learn from them that's great news all right it's time for another music break and there's a couple more stories coming up uh, i can't guarantee the the mood for them but uh yeah it'll be it'll be good all right here's some more uh more l1011 <laughs> Thank you. 
welcome back. I uh, got some more stories. There's a lot of stories. And yeah, okay. So next up, uh, this is from OC Weekly. Uh, UC Irvine Black Student Union demands end to campus police department. Awesome. And this is written by uh, Matt Coker. And this was from January 28th. So yesterday. Uh, the campus police, they live inside my head. The campus police, they come to me in Middle Earth. The campus police, they're coming to arrest me. Oh, no. And that's a bastardization of Cheap Tricks Dream Police in light of recent uh, UCI BSU petition. According to an online petition, the Black Student Union at UC Irvine is demanding the abolition of the campus police department, calling contemporary police forces uh, modern incarnations of the antebellum plantation and slave patrols. The demand made via change.org to UCI Chancellor Howard Gilman and the administrators of UCI and the University of California states. The problem is that the policing as an institution is unethical. It accompanies anti-black violence. There were 304 minutes. All right. There are 240 uh, signatures as of Wednesday afternoon toward a goal of only 500. The BSU demand was set off by alleged interrogations and forced confessions surrounding last year's student government consideration of a ban on all flags, including the American flag, from the student uh, common area. And they have uh, links to the stories here. Uh, a non-deputized black person could never do the following. Hold six right-wing students hostage in an administration building while violating their civil rights. Make, uh, police, protection, make police protection from anonymous violence contingent upon them. Signing a document and force these students to apologize for refusing to fly red, black, and green black liberation flags in their student organizations comment the petition reads like rage against the machine the bsu claims some of them who join the forces are, are the same who burn crosses today's cops as did yesterday's kkk intimidate imprison sexually assault and murder black people according to the petition this creates a violent space for students who should be provided safe spaces to learn think and intellectually grow Besides UCI police, any additional paramilitary force presence on campus must be dismantled, states the petition, which you can read, uh, and the, they post the link to the petitions on the article, uh, via UCI spokeswoman Kathy uh, Lahan came the following statement. On Tuesday, January 26th, the chancellor's office received a letter from UCI's Black Student Union demanding the abolition of the campus police force. The UCI Police Department comprises a highly respected team of officers who risk their lives to ensure the safety of our students, faculty, and staff. We are proud of them and will continue to support the department. The letter also makes false malicious accusations against several staff members, many of them uh, many of whom worked diligently to address the BSU's uh, earlier demands and advance a safe, comfortable environment for all students. We stand by those dedicated professionals. Yeah, UCI's administration, staff, and faculty are committed to a diverse, inclusive environment. Significant progress has been achieved, uh, as outlined in the summary linked here, and they provide a link. Uh, we continue to encourage an open, productive dialogue with BSU and remain dedicated to a campus that is safe, inclusive, and celebrates diverse cultures and opinions. 
The Weekly could find no contact information for UCI's college Republicans after 2012, so hats off to campus reform, which managed to snag a reaction to the BSU petition from Peter Van Voorhees, a member of the conservative student group. And Peter says, I feel like they really pushed the narrative of victimhood to, to demonize the university, Van Voorhees said of the black activists in campus reform which describes itself as an American education watchdog and links directly to the Drudge Report. <laughs> they are saying that they are being uh, pressured with the threat of losing their lives, so therefore we need to ban the police on campus. Uh, labeling it as a pretty baseless attack, Van Voorhees offered, I think uh, even left-wing students would realize that that's a bit insane to call for police to be banned in order to create a safe space for marginalized groups. Um, clearly this person hasn't... Uh, experienced uh, police violence or been on the receiving end of it. So, uh, yeah, it's hoping more from this article um, and to hear more from the the activists in the in the in the BSU. Um, although I'm definitely for creating uh, systems without police. So hats off to them for for working on that and for calling it out. Um, oh, speaking of, of calling things out, I'm going to be, I'll go into this other article and uh, this might just take a moment to pull up here. Um, yeah, so this is what I was talking about before about, uh, within the comedy community, there is, uh, uh, goodness, there's, yeah, there's misbehavior, there's misbehavior in a lot of communities, certainly. And then when it happens within comedy communities, it's, it feels extra sad to me, certainly. Uh, cause here are places where people who might feel like they don't feel included in other communities can kind of come together. And then even within these communities, there's a lot of, uh, there's just abuse and mistreatment, putting it mildly. Um, so this is from Jezbel. I don't really read Jezbel too much, although there are articles there that I appreciate this being one of them. And this is written by, uh, Joanna Rothkopf. Uh, Chicago's women comedians are fighting back against sexual harassment. Uh, early this week, the founder of Improv Olympic, I.O., one of the most important comedy theaters in the country, inadvertently lit a fire under the Chicago comedy community's ass. The issue of sexual harassment is very important to me, and I have put policies in place and even have a professional counselor at I.O.S. to help if there is ever a problem, uh, Charna Halpern wrote on her Facebook page. Um, uh, but there are times when there are women who just like Oh, but there are times when there are women who just like to either cause trouble or get revenge or just want attention, so they make up stories. Uh, Halpern wrote her post after a student had claimed on Facebook that a producer had sexually harassed her. In return, she said, Halpern had offered her free classes. Uh, this call never happened, Halpern claimed. I've never had any complaints about Name Redacted. Um, nor would I handle an issue in such a shallow way. It's people like this who make it difficult when a woman really has a problem. We need to take this issue seriously and not spread lies because you didn't make a team or for whatever reason you're angry. The post earned hundreds of likes and sparked a conversation many comments long, many of which involved Halpern repeatedly defending her mistaken position that women often falsely report harassment. The debate then splintered off into various unique posts across the Chicago comedy community. Uh, an abbreviated version is available uh, on Imgur since the original post has been taken down. 
The discussion quickly veered away from the issue of the woman in question, who may or may not be telling the truth, and turned into one that has tormented the Los Angeles and New York improv communities for some time. How to best address uh, an epidemic of sexual harassment and misogynistic behavior in comedy in general. The Los Angeles comedy scene has been reeling since comedian Beth Stelling and later Courtney Poroso admitted to being sexually assaulted and raped by fellow comedian Kale Hartman. The private Women of UCB Facebook page has served as a gathering point where women in the community can organize and figure out how to move forward together. In interviews with BuzzFeed for a lengthy piece by uh, Katie uh, J.M. Baker, the number of women in that group recounted that reporting harassment or unsettling sexual content in a scene is frequently looked down upon. If you complain about it, one comedian said, you're not viewed as a team player. I didn't want to step on toes. I didn't want to step on any toes or prevent opportunities for myself, said another, who ended up quitting after repeated harassment. I know that's sad, but I didn't know who I could trust. The nonprofit Women in Comedy recently circulated a Google uh, form entitled Gross Things That Happened to Me as a Woman in Comedy that allowed women to anonymously report unsettling or violent behavior they had experienced, experienced and posted the response on its website. One reads, an indie team practice, uh, at indie team practice, he flashed his dick at all my female team for a really long time, despite repeated protests. He'd say, I didn't get to see yours. Ew. After a year later, we reported it. Uh, several others made reports on separate incidents. He suffered consequences. Now I hear he's back in the game. No one seems to care anymore. They must understand that there are people who pretend to be victims and that this is and and that it is they who that hurt the real victims. Harper uh doubled down uh in in a later post. That's why I was incensed on on oh on on behalf of real victims. I think that's the the training I got. I got at IO, and it's a really special, valuable place that has been sort of getting eaten up by all this casual sexism. Julia Weiss, a member of the Second City Touring Company and one of the primary commenters on the Facebook thread, told Jezebel, it's the little things, the microaggressions, the uh, under-representation, the fact that we see men as improvisers and women as female improvisers. Reading uh, Charna's post, it was clear that the mentality can come from the top down. Part of the problem is that the comedy community is so steeped in a culture of sexism. This is especially true of the Chicago, of the Chicago scene's history. I mean, Del Close, former Second City director and father of modern improv, was a misogynist. Let's not forget that, Weiss said. He wasn't a sunshiny, cool-ass cool dude who thought women were funny. He was a misogynistic asshole, and we've inherited the world that he created. Halperin has previously denied the characterization of Close, whom she worked with for years, and as Kim Howard Johnson wrote in the book, uh, The Funniest One in the Room, uh, The Lives and Legends of Del Close, for every woman who considered him a misogynist, there seemed to be another who was deeply devoted to him. Although I would assume you can also, this is my, my own perspective, you, uh, you can feel both ways too. Uh, or they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, Victoria Elena... Knowns, a comedian who has been a member of the Second City House team, founded Women in Comedy to combat the entrenched misogyny. On a call with Jezebel, Knowns 
agreed that Halpern's attitude was a symptom of a much larger problem. I think people are trying to find one villain to attack for a systemic problem that has been happening for a long time, she said. I think it's a cultural problem. Halpern's just raising a voice within the issue and showing that sometimes these institutions sort of oppress our voices when we do try to come forward. Last year, IO, The Annoyance, Second City, and the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater all revamped their misconduct policies. UCB and IO West even hired licensed counselors at their New York and Los Angeles training centers. Following Halpern's post, it's reportedly uh, recirculated their list of policies. Or IO reportedly recircled their list of policies. This is a thing that's making me angry right now, Nones told Jezebel that these institutions are coming back and saying, well, we have policies in place. The reality is that if you're not actively engaging in those policies and you're not making sure everybody knows it on a regular on a regular day-to-day basis and making it a part of your company culture, then those policies don't mean anything. No one's argued that the teachers and are the ones mainly responsible for allowing a sexist culture to flourish. To combat it, these values need to be integrated into the curriculum from the very first class. This happens across industries, and I think we're experiencing it on a greater level because we are dealing with jokes. People are saying, don't limit my creative freedom. Don't censor me, she continued. We're supposed to be political and social satirists, and that's the epitome of comedy. But if we're not using those sensitive subjects intelligently, then it's uh, no use. We end up just sort of saying racist, sexist, homophobic, and I'll throw in transphobic, that wasn't mentioned here, and also xenophobic things in our places, in our jokes. Um, Irene Marquette, a teacher at IO, The Annoyance, and Second City, says she attempts to approach her work from a holistic standpoint. If you are directing performers, it's necessary to think about it from that standpoint. How are they giving and taking power? How are they expressing themselves? She said on a phone call with Jezebel, we can explore different power dynamics and at different status levels, but that the performers themselves are coming at the material from a place of empowerment and awareness. Marquette makes a concerted effort to have conversations about acceptable behavior at the beginning of every class and when questionable scenes scenes arise. You're asking these people to dig into their subconsciousness and to be truthful and say things that are real. You are like mainlining them in in their id. And sometimes the things that they say are so out there. There's so much that is internalized that people aren't even aware of. I have also had to completely shift my views as an instructor, wrote uh, Susan Messing, uh, an IO veteran instructor and founding member of the Annoyance Theater, in an email. I thought that by modeling strong uh, onstage behavior as a performer and teaching people how to protect an improviser's onstage safety and content so people could laugh, that was enough. I am learning that it is still woefully inadequate. And for that, I feel terrible and have to double down my efforts. On Wednesday, comedian Caroline Sabatier uh, published an essay on um, essay on the Women in Comedy website in which she confessed to being harassed and assaulted repeatedly by an unnamed authority figure in one of Chicago's improv institutions. Sabatier wrote about that her attempts at reporting the perpetrators to the theater and the police were repeatedly foiled. The theater refused to promise her anonymity in reporting the perpetrator, and the police weren't 
much more help. Not a shock there. Uh, Due to the threat of defamation, she wrote, I was never able to name my attacker, and to my knowledge, he continues to teach. In the post, Sabatier proposed a Chicago comedian black comedy, a Chicago comedy blackout for February 1st in honor of every person who has left the entertainment industry because they were hurt by someone else in it and did not feel that they had any other choice but to get out. There's already been much, there's already been so much good work that has been done within this community. And I think that's why this is bubbling up right now, because we've already been laying the foundation and lifting each other up, Weiss said. The energy of the women talking about this right now is, by and large, really excited and positive. I'm really proud of the community I'm in for standing up and for demanding the right to, de- to redefine these spaces. Halpern has slowly began... Halpern has slowly begun to retreat from her original firm stance. I have read your posts and listened to your messages, she wrote on Facebook, several days after the initial post, noticing, uh, noting that she would be conducting an internal review of IO's policies. I'm listening to you now, and I will continue to listen. Improv is an art form that cannot exist without trust, and IO would not be the magical place that it is for so many of us if we did not have a foundation of trust. IO is a place where everyone is welcome. If there have been times where some of you have uh, felt that was not the case, it ends today. Women in Comedy reiterated Sabatier's call for a February 1st blackout, demanding a boycott of all theaters at which women have felt harassed um, or exploited next Monday. And my, my side note. My, my notice is going to be that would be all theaters and pretty much all places, uh, just from what I've witnessed and even experienced. Uh, the organization will also host a discussion with the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, CAA, uh, CAASE's executive director at uh, Keith Morris um, Hoffer at the Laugh Factory that night, or Kathy Morris Hoffer at the Laugh Factory that night. We don't learn to stop playing with fire because someone tells us to. The event description reads, we stop because we get burned. Update. Charna Halpern has since commented on the discussion to Chicagoist. I'm learning, she said on the phone, up until today, nobody has come to me personally about sexual harassment at IO within the last 15, I don't know, within the last 15 years. I didn't know any of this crap that's going on. It's terrible. She maintains that the initial woman in question was never a student at I.O., but says she will work to update I.O.'s policies regarding sexual harassment. I want to do it again. I want to do it right. I have learned that people are afraid to talk to me, she concluded. They're afraid that because they were victimized, I'm going to throw them off a team. That is the one thing that makes me cry. That is the one thing that kills me. So... Yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of what the stories said. And also just from folks I've spoken to, um, a lot of folks confide in me uh, back in New York and here in San Francisco, too, about experiences they've had uh, being harassed. And uh, that was one thing that's happened. I'll be super vague with this, but uh, someone I knew in one city moved to another city. And I knew people, I know people all around, so this will be super vague. And she met someone, and she's like, do you know... I'll not mention this person's name. And I was like, ah, yes. And uh, it turns out this person had been not great to me and a number of other people as well and was also not being so great 
and this is me also being very vague with the behavior, but less the, the behavior was sketchy and gross and, and unkind and just not, not pleasant. So, uh, it was just, uh, not surprising at all that I would, that this person would move to a different city and be harassed by the same person who had harassed me and other folks. So yeah, this is definitely, it's been an ongoing epidemic. So I'm glad that more folks were speaking about it and coming forward with it. Um, so I'm going to finish up the show. We just have a few more minutes left here and I'll be reading, just going to read a little bit about the memorial that's happening for, for Bryn. And this was, uh, from, uh, DNA info and the, the articles written by Camilla Bautista, uh, Brooklyn writer, Bryn Kelly to be honored at Memorial, uh, Bed-Stuyvesant. Bedford Stuyvesant, a Brooklyn writer and artist well-known in the transgender community, will be honored by family and friends in an upcoming memorial service. Bryn Kelly, 35, died of an apparent suicide in her Bedford Stuyvesant home on January 13th, according to friends. Kelly, a writer who publicly shared her, the, her experiences of living as an HIV-positive transgender woman, penned several short stories and works published in anthologies and journals, along with online blogs and columns de- detailing her personal life, friends said. She was incredibly wise, resilient, kind, and intimidatingly smart in the least pretentious way, making references to operas or totally obscure historical facts, said friend Katie Lederman. She was one of the most provocative, creative, frustrating, beautiful, and brilliant people I have ever met. Kelly was many things to many people, working as a hairdresser, musician, and actress. In addition to her writing, she was a great tarot card reader, friends said, and served up southern dishes during her dinner parties. Her Atlantic Avenue apartment, dubbed Trans Central Station, also doubled as an event and rehearsal space for the creative community. Friends launched an online fundraiser for Kelly's February 6th, 6th Memorial, which has raised more than $17,000 as of Thursday. Proceeds from the campaign will go toward a scholarship fund in her name at Lambda Literary, an organization that works to promote LGBTQ literature. Kelly, who lived in Ohio and on the West Coast before moving to Brooklyn, participated in Lambda Literary's 2013 Writer's Retreat Program as a nonfiction fellow and had a unique perspective according to teacher and friend Sarah Schulman. She was intellectual, humorous, and was an excellent colleague to other students, Schulman added. At the, time, at the same time, Kelly made efforts to navigate through hospitalizations and her illness, along with struggling through personal issues, friends said. She was constantly trying to find a solution for her conflicts, Schulman said. She was very, very smart, and she needed really sophisticated and immersive treatment. Kelly's passing is the latest uh, to bring awareness to the issue of suicide in the LGBTQ community, with Shulman adding that further actions and conversations need to be spurred to put a stop to the deaths. Clearly, our institutions are not responding to people's needs when people are in trouble, when queer trans women are in trouble, she said. And on the interior, we simply have to talk openly as a community about how to end this fantasy of idealized suicide. The idea that there is an option or in fact inevitable has taken hold. Um, the idea that this is an option or in fact inevitable has taken, uh, has taken hold 
and is its distorted thinking in a group consciousness. We're all heartbroken. Public figures in the transgender community commented on Kelly's death, including Caitlyn Jenner and Orange is the New Black star Laverne Cox, who said that she wept for the loss of another one, another one of our trans sisters, and encouraged people to ask for help and donate to Kelly's memorial service. And uh, Laverne writes, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave this here, but you can read uh, what Laverne wrote um, here on the page. Uh, Kelly volunteered at SAGE, which provides services and advocates for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender elders, friends said. Uh, she and Liederman helped create a karaoke night for the seniors where Kelly would belt out renditions of Midnight Train to Georgia, Purple Rain, and These Boots Are Made for Walk-In, according to Liederman. Uh, friends described her as a lady and Southern Belle who recently started facilitating a support group for older trans women at SAGE. Because of how much she struggled, she had a tremendous capacity for empathy, more so than anyone I ever met, Liederman said. She helped people so much, and she was such an incredible resource because she had lived it. Kelly was cremated, and an earlier memorial service was held for her in West Virginia, according to friends. The New York Memorial will be held on February 6th at 7 p.m. at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine at 1047 Amsterdam Avenue. It is open to absolutely anyone and everyone who knew Bryn in any capacity. If you met her once or just really liked reading her Tumblr, everyone is welcome, organizer and friend Elizabeth Koch said. A reception will be held on February 7th, Bryn's birth Kelly's birthday, at the Sage Space at 305 7th Avenue. 15th floor um, from 3 to 6 p.m. for those who knew Kelly personally to come together and pay their respects. Uh, so, um, uh, it's a sad way to, to end the show. Um, but uh, I want to just uh, be grateful that she's being... Um, remembered and that folks are gathering uh, to remember her. That's super important. So uh, I'm gonna end with one of the songs that was uh, mentioned uh, uh, um, in, that, in that article. It's a f one of my favorites, uh, Midnight Train to Georgia by Gladys Knight and the Pips. So while I bring that up, um, I'll do a brief let's see some show plugs that are coming up again next week we'll have Zarina Zabrinsky who will be on the show and uh, a little bit clear more clear-headed and uh, this Wednesday the first Wednesday of the month there I co-host the LGBTQ improv jam at Stageworks at 446 Valencia it's at 7 30 p.m. free for all to attend and we have it for uh, queer players to play and if you've never done improv before welcome free to play as well so everyone have a um great week fight the powers that be and we'll be back next week and uh, yeah Those were
Insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and 